destination in mind as far as how far we make it through first Peter. I didn't know if we'd make it through the whole book or not. I just kept preparing and as God was speaking to me and I was studying scripture. Um, we'll make it to chapter 3 verse 7 by the end of tomorrow morning. God willing. Today we'll be in chapter 2. Let's get right into the text. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, get the phone out. If you don't have a phone, peek at your partner's Bible. If you don't have any of that, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> while, you, uh, while you guys are turning, I'll just mention real quick, I saw three remarkably beautiful things today. Um, one, uh, me and Tressa put on our wetsuits and rolled around in the ocean. The waves were kind of like mashed potatoes, not actual <laughs> waves. But there was a seal that was hanging out and, and just flopping around, and we were so close to it. It was beautiful. Um, seals, seals can actually be really territorial about surfing, too. But there's the, the second thing I thought was really beautiful I saw today was um, I got lost on the beach again this afternoon. <laughs> that beach! Like, like an abyss you just fall into and you don't know how to get up. But what, this is a little cheesy, but what helped me find home was seeing the cross. That cross was a beacon to remind me of where home is and we can go all into these sermon illustrations. But we won't do that. Uh, and the third thing was, was um, when you get out far enough in the water, there's actually a lot of times birds will swing by and almost like kiss the water, like a flock of them will like hover right over the water. Like, and they, they know how to like, measure out whether the wave is up or down and just be right over. It's beautiful. Such a beautiful day. Enough of that. Time to get in the text. On <laughs> ESV, starting in verse 1, we're going to read verse 1 through 3. It says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Give me an amen if you've tasted the Lord is good. Amen. It's fun to say amen out loud in church. I don't know. That's exciting. Um, I love the verse starts with so. Anytime you see like a so, it's a cause and effect. Because of this, this is how it is. Because we have been redeemed and we have a new identity in Jesus, we're supposed to put away the old life. Away the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, and the slander. As I was reading this verse, um, it was uh, apparent to me how damaging, well, anything malicious is, and how damaging deceit is. Well, and how damaging envy can be to the soul, and how slander can be damaging to relationships. But I skipped over one there, didn't I? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It's the one, as I read the text, I don't really want to deal with. Hypocrisy can come in a lot of different forms. It can come as self-righteousness. It can come as a log in our eye as we accuse a brother or sister. But the way I want to talk about hypocrisy for a second um, comes from a place of I'm often hip hypocritical. Hypocritical in the way that I can give off a version of myself that looks a lot better than what's actually going on inside, especially in Christian communities. I can act okay and say the right spiritual things. But when someone asks me, well, how's your walk with Jesus? It's easy to kind of give flimsy answers. And, and when I'm actually not doing spiritually well, um, not give the honest answer. It's kind of easy to do. It's, it's easy to not engage with what's authentically going on between me and Jesus. We're supposed to put away that hypocritical spirit. I think it's so isolating and self-damaging when we become insulated with this kind of mask we can put on with brothers and sisters in church. Where it comes to where we're at spiritually. We, we, we cannot admit to ourselves or to others where we're at and then we feel lonely. I've kind of decided, I've been teaching more and more uh, just because I'm getting to youth pastor. Uh, that I'm going to be real with my sin on stage as long as it's appropriate for the audience. Obviously, middle schoolers, you know, can't hear everything. Uh, but I'm just like, you know what? There's, there's no, like, facade I need to put on in Christian community or even, like, doing some, like, Christian leadership stuff because it doesn't actually help anyone to hide things in the dark. It makes us feel isolated, and it doesn't give someone else a chance to bear our burdens. 
It doesn't give someone else a chance to give us grace, someone else a chance to remind us of our identity. And I get we want to have safe people we share stuff with, and we shouldn't just barf out all of our ish. Uh -huh. but, but I think that sometimes we can be a little bit hypocritical, wear a little bit of a mask, be a little inauthentic, even with the people we are safe with. And that can be very damaging. Show us to put that away. Peter calls um, them newborn infants. He says, newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. I, I, I have heard like a lot of people say about churches, well, that, that church, they only, um, they only preach milk and I need some meat. It's bulking season. I need some spiritual meat to bulk up on. And while I totally think you need to care about good biblical teaching, it's important you find a church that's nursing and building you up and not just watering it down. That's super important. What I, what I want to advocate for, 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 for sometimes is sometimes we miss out on the simple, beautiful gospel truths that even a child could understand because we're so busy picking complex theological wedgies that are all stuck up in a rich. And, and, and while I love the mind exercise of theology and I believe solid theology is so important, sometimes we get a little puffed up with it. Or sometimes we get a little just too obsessed with the nuances and we forget to be nourished by pure spiritual milk. Peter is using spiritual milk, I believe, in a positive way. But in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, Paul is talking about spiritual milk differently, and I don't think they're, made, they're linked in this way. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. These are people who are operating in the flesh as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? These people in 1 Corinthians, they, they needed a milk and it was negative because they weren't growing in Christ. They were still at level one, and it's like by then they should have been at level 10. In that way, we want to grow up and we want to be able to chew on me. But I still think, well, all I'm trying to say is, is we don't want to become desensitized to the beautiful, simple gospel truths that should nourish our soul every single day. And oftentimes, quite honestly, I still walk in flesh. One hour walking in the spirit in my quiet time with Jesus, the next oftentimes operating in my mind in the flesh. I probably still need some milk. I'm not going to get too puffed up to say I don't need milk. But what I'm saying is get to a point where you can have your spiritual steak with a cool glass of spiritual milk right next to it, where you can have the complex and the simple and draw from both of them. Yeah, you know, as an adult, I'm not sure if this analogy works, but as adult, an adult, um, I've become lactose intolerant, if that's maybe the right word for it. You know, as a 25-year-old, I'm 28 now, as a 25-year-old, this is super man-childish of me, but I would drink like a big glass of whole milk and eat graham crackers every night, it was like, and uh, it was delicious. Like, don't judge me right now, okay? Help me sleep. And then, like, along the last two years, I've become, I don't know if it's lactose intolerant. I just can't stomach it like I used to. Don't get to a point spiritually where you can't stomach the beautiful, simple truths of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean don't get super nerded out on theology and care about it. Solid theology, complex theology totally matters. You know, you've met me, people, we've never met, we're this person who get a little imbalanced, a little obsessed with the secondary, and not able to see the beauty of the primary. Let's get into verse, uh, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion, a corner, uh, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. A lot going on in verses 4 through 8. Let's start with this. 
that Jesus is the stone that is rejected. Jesus is the rock rejected by his own people. Like in John 1, it says he came to his own people and they did not receive him. He's literally talking that the Jewish people are the one who crucified him. He came to his own people first, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And he was rejected by his own people. He was discarded to the cross like in Isaiah 53. 3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, he was esteemed not. And yet, it's by those stripes were healed. He was chosen by God to be a salvation for all, and yet rejected by many. He is the rock we either trip over in our disbelief or we build our lives on. This comes from Isaiah chapter 8, this whole um, like little poem going on about this cornerstone and the rock that's rejected. In Isaiah chapter 8, 14 through 16, he says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. In our disbelief, we trip on Jesus. On our way to godliness without grace, we trip on the gospel. It trips us up. It destroys every thought of self-righteousness, every muscleness that wants to earn our salvation, every muscleness that wants to say, if I do something, I'll be more valued Amen. by God. It's the rock we trip on, on that pursuit. Because he says, you didn't do anything to make me love you more. You didn't do anything to make me want to save you more. You didn't do anything to save yourself. You didn't do anything to purify yourself. You didn't do anything to get yourself in heaven. Our vain attempts to enter the fold of God by any other way than Christ is tripped up by his salvation. Furthermore, if this, if this relates, his teachings are a rock on which we build our lives on or neglect. As the rains come and the storms sweep us away, we either build a house on the sand or the rock. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I will say, too, in Romans, I believe it's chapter 9, verse 33, Paul quotes this passage. He, puts, put the, uh, he says this passage from Isaiah chapter 8, and he's talking about um, how the Jews have primarily rejected Jesus, but God has been using the Gentiles giving them salvation in a way to make the Jewish people jealous that they would then receive salvation. He's, I don't want to get pick too many theological wedges on this, okay? And I'm sorry if that makes you feel weird me saying that. Uh, maybe I could say it less weird. <laughs> but, but he's electing the Gentiles in that passage in Romans 9 in order that the Jews would be jealous, and he's using them, one, because he loves them and wants them to have salvation, the Gentiles, but he's also using them to draw in more Jewish people. He's using election to bring in more people. We think election often means exclusion, but most of the time in scripture, it's a pattern of inclusion. Jesus elects the remnant of Israel. He elects from that remnant Jesus so that Jesus would be a blessing to all nations and salvation to all people. I'm just saying, I'm not gonna pick it all there, and I don't know if I have the wisdom to be able to pick everything about election, but keep that in mind. You know, when, when Dustin asked me to preach on 1 Peter, I was really excited, and I'm still very excited, but when I started reading 1 Peter and realized I was talking about election and sanctification and submissive wives, we're getting into government tonight, I'm like, dude, I don't know, uh, I don't know, it's because you hate me, you made me think on all these theologically complex things, man. So I'm having to do my homework a little bit. And uh, forgive me if I can't touch on everything. Peter says, um, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. There's three things that we're going to draw out of here. That the people are called living stones, that they're called a holy priesthood, and they're to offer spiritual sacrifices. Living stones. Again, this is a way that um, Peter is connecting primarily these Gentile Christians to the legacy of the Jewish people, to the Jewish temple. Individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, but collectively, we're like stones being built up, stacked on each other, built off each other's gifts and strengths, and who the Lord has appointed us to be in community with each other, to be a place where God dwells. 
The place where God dwells isn't just some building or it's not just one ministry program or someplace, but it's when Christians come together and they live holy lives, which is primarily marked by how they love one another and serve one another. So then they can be built up in a way to evangelize to the rest of the world. He calls them a royal priesthood. He's also connecting the Gentiles to the legacy of the Jewish priesthood. I love that Peter's including these people that were once far off. God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19, 5, 6. Exodus 19 is pretty confusing, too. Well, I'll just read you these two verses. Now, if you will indeed obey my voice, this is Exodus 19, 5, 6. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations. For the whole earth is mine, and unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests. And the holy nation... These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. He's saying that to Moses. Go say that to the Israelites. Now, um, Israelites weren't perfect. They had a priesthood. A lot of examples in scripture of priests that weren't perfect. Like uh, I was just reading about the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel. That are like, I'm paraphrasing this, but they were eating whatever they wanted off the Lord's offering. They weren't perfect priests. But the, the, the picture of, 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 a, of a good priest is to be a mediator between God and man, to, to offer sin offerings and other offerings in order that the people will be clean, right? That's what the high priest is doing on the Day of Atonement, is he's actually cleansing all of the Israelites. They're supposed to mediate for the people of God. They're supposed to be a representative. They're supposed to help people be, um, yeah, clean before God and representatives. I, I love that that uh, in the design of the temple, right, there's these little rooms on the side that the priests some of them live in. And the priests, their job is, well, to do everything around the temple, to be near God. What an honor, what a privilege. But also, they get to eat literally from the portion of things that are given to the temple for sacrifices and stuff. So their whole lives are marked by being near God and mediating to people. When we find this identity of what, that we're royal priests. It's crazy. God calls me a royal priest. And Jesus that I'm supposed to be someone who mediates to other people. I don't know. Maybe it relates to um, what Jesus said, that we have the keys of the kingdom of heaven and who we forgive on earth is forgiven in heaven. Maybe that's a picture of mediation. Maybe we mediate a new covenant to the people, not of the law through hundreds and hundreds of sacrifices, but we mediate a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. We make it known. We represent it. We declare it. We bring it into manifestation in the people's lives by declaring the gospel through deed and words. He says uh, something about spiritual sacrifices. The word says spiritual sacrifice because, well, Jesus already made the sacrifice. He's not saying go make more sacrifice, but there's this, there's this cool word spiritual sacrifices. There's no more atonement sacrifice that's needed, but the sacrifice we offer now as royal peace, royal priests, and living stones is like Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The sacrifice we, we offer God isn't one to atone for ourselves, but it is a response of someone who's full of the Spirit, offering up their body in submission and surrender, saying, Lord, you're all mine. What I do with my body, what I do with my will, it's all yours. It's all yours. I love that. I love that in Romans 12, 1, it's called um, spiritual worship, too. We all know, and we can all distinguish, we call praising God through music worship, and it is definitely worship, but there's other types of worship. There's other types of worship. Serving, offering our bodies in different ways unto the Lord. And I just want to say real quick that, that the most peace I've experienced in my Christian walk has come from the times that I'm throwing myself at Jesus like a sacrifice, saying everything I have is yours. My body is yours. My thoughts, even though I think them, my emotions, even though I feel them, they're not the ultimate truth. They're yours to change and refine. There is this beautiful like self-forgetfulness where we let go of our ego and we let go of our layers of self-protection. And we expose ourselves spiritually naked before the Lord and say, I'm yours. I'm not going to hide behind a fig leaf in shame. I'm not going to hide from you, Lord, but I'm, I'm going to face you as one who I know that you love and redeem. 
and give you myself. As Jesus surrendered his own body to the will of God on the cross, we surrender our lives to the Lord for the furthering of the kingdom. And we can only do this by the Spirit. Let's get into uh, verses 9 through 12. says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, the, on the day of vegetation. As God's people were to be set apart like a royal priesthood, a holy nation to proclaim his excellencies. Our lives stop becoming about us and we start becoming about the Lord, proclaiming his excellencies, not pursuing whatever makes us feel excellent or we think is excellent. As exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, we abstain from the kingdom of the world. We don't love the things of the world. We like them. We're, we're, allowed, to, we're allowed to enjoy things in this world like good coffee and seals out at the beach. And I think some of that might even point to what the new heaven and the new earth will be. We, we another wedgie to pick out. But um, I don't know. I was going to say, you know, we talk so much about being exiles and not calling this place your home. But I think some of the good things in this world do point to what will be in the new heaven and new earth. I think there might be forests in the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, it's the new heaven and the new earth. Like, it's not just like some weird dimension we have no idea of. Maybe. I mean, the Bible points to pictures of rivers flowing out of the temple, of, of gardens, things growing. I don't know. I hope there's some of the beauty in this earth perfected in that perfected kingdom, okay? I'm not saying don't enjoy the things of this earth, but I'm saying don't let them consume you. Don't let it be a trick of your flesh indulging you. Live as exiles who abstain from the kingdom of the world in all its falsehoods and live as citizens of the eternal kingdom. We do all this in an honorable way, uh, despite the trials we face. Maybe not perfectly, but faithfully. Maybe not um, perfectly, but willing to engage in the struggle of what it takes to, to embrace trials in the name of Jesus. And we do this, we face our trials in a way that others can be won over to God by seeing the example of someone who suffers well. I, I think about... Two spiritual giants in my life that, that I really saw a little bit of sainthood by the way they suffered. One was a guy I worked with at Coffee Oasis um, who was uh, an employee with me, a coworker, and he was going through a divorce at the time. And, and most people get divorced. There's like a lot of issues on both sides. This was one where it's like his wife was leaving him for like super not Christian reasons. I mean, I'm sure there's stuff he could have done better. Don't get me wrong. But it was just so hurtful. But the way he walked out that pain and still glorify God was beautiful to me. The way he, he didn't have an eye for an eye for, with his wife, the way he honored and respected her, although she was basically slapping him in the face saying, I don't love you, I don't want you, I don't need you, I want my own life. He, he, he was hurt by it, but he didn't respond out of that hurt to her. It took prayer. It took going on walks pretty much all night, but that was beautiful to me, and he was still had joy. He was still praising God. I would be so devastated if I was in the divorce, I don't know if I could get back up. He was still walking, limping, but walking. He clung to Jesus so incredibly. The other example of someone I've seen suffer so well, it was a witness to me, uh, was a, another coworker when I lived in Oregon. I worked with this woman, Leslie, very good family friend of mine. Um, she is 55 years old, and she was never married, and she really wanted to be single. Or sorry, she really wanted to be married. <laughs> that is the opposite of what she wanted. Now, some single people, they don't mind being single. They want to be single, and that's a beautiful gift, Scripture says. Some single people really, really want to be married, and that's a hard thing to wrestle with, but also a beautiful wrestle to have. 
is gone. I think there's so much that is, when someone's single and they, they embrace that trial well, and they want to be married, that it's such a witness to other people. It, it can be such a witness. And we've got to be more accepting in, in the way we talk about things at church, and I need to be, um, of, of, of not acting like everyone wants to get married or everyone's married and like marriage is the highlight of life. That's so like exclusive of people who are single. My friend Leslie uh, wanted to be married though. And you know, it's weird to watch some of you guys have seen this. Friends get married in their early 20s. You're like, wow, that's, an, that's a, a young married couple. When people get married in their later 20s. They're like, oh, they're maybe not young, but they're married. And then, People are in their 30s and they're still not married. And then there's all these weird comments people make, like, oh, what's wrong with them? Like, oh. could you say anything worse? Then people don't get married in your 40s and you're like, maybe they're cursed by God or something. You're like, there's these hurtful things said. And when you don't get married in your 50s, honestly, at that point, you're like, it's probably never going to happen. My friend Leslie, sweetheart, loves Jesus, has spent her life mentoring youth and being on this radical um, adventure with God doing it. She mentored me. She's a great woman. Um, and she just got married like two months ago. She just got married. But the way she handled that, she was so sad between her and God, and yet still so content in God, still so willing to do his work, still so willing to be his mission. And she could be real with that sadness between God. God, why, why are you making me go through this? I don't know why, Maybe, but, but it's a good reason because I know you're good. I know you're my father. I know you're good. Dude, it was such a witness to me. It's such a witness to see someone go through a trial and cling to Jesus and walk through it faithfully. Perhaps the biggest witness to this world won't be some guy preaching from a stage, but it will be how you suffer well for Jesus. Yeah. We're going to go through some passages, some examples of people who suffer. We're going to go through a citizen who suffers oppressive government. We're going to go through a passage about how a servant suffers a brutal master. We're going to go through a passage about how a believing wife suffers an unbelieving husband. We're going to go through a passage about a husband who's supposed to cherish and pray for his wife and consider her in a way that honors God and is a witness to people. How we handle these trials ultimately shows people who Jesus really is. And now while we may not be in these situations, we may not be a citizen in an oppressive government, arguably, um, we can learn from the heart posture that is presented to suffer well as a witness to other people. While we may not be a, like an indentured servant, I really hope you're not, um, with a brutal master, we can learn from the witness that, they, that, that is shown in this example. While we may not be a wife who needs to submit to her unbelieving husband. Sorry, I said that a little, a little, I'll just keep talking. Um, um, we can still learn from this example while we may not be a husband who needs to consider and love his wife and have his prayers not hindered that we can still learn from the heart posture the heart posture is applicable so let's be warm as tonight we're only gonna have time to go through um, the citizen who suffers an oppressive government and it's got so many wedgies in there for us to pick so um maybe i, I gotta find a different analogy you guys maybe we, can, maybe we can find one together later my humor is that of a seventh grader uh it's why i work in middle schoolers for real you're doing great thank you okay i am gonna jump down i'm gonna ask you to jump down and look at um first peter chapter 2 verse 20 for a second i believe verse uh, chapter 2, verse 20, captures kind of the key heart posture in these things. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good, and that's what causes you to suffer, it's gracious in the sight of God. That's what these examples are all about when we suffer for doing good. Remaining steadfast, it is beautiful to God and a witness to others. This is the hard posture God wants us to have, to be salt and light. In situations, that would be really easy to be an eye for an eye for, when injustice is done to us. To be salt and light in a, in a world where it's common to act out of hurt rather than faithfulness. To be salt and light in a world that often complains, whines, becomes enraged, acts out in injustice when it's hurt. Yet Christ lived this perfectly, going on to verse 21, and we'll go back and and cover the verses we skipped. I'm just, I'm just pointing out the key to these texts, I believe. Talking about Jesus' example. 
In verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus suffered so perfectly like a lamb led to slaughter that didn't open his mouth and it was a witness to the world of the way we can suffer in the face of injustice and be a witness to others. He was pure despite his persecution. He prayed while he's hung up on a cross in front of his enemies, exposed naked in the most shameful place, looking like he lost to all his disciples. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That kind of pure love that's the real soul strength that we can have through the Holy Spirit. Such purity and godliness is shown when we love those who wrong us, to have integrity when we're treated poorly. I can't say uh, like I'm the king of being treated poorly, but I've had times where I've been really hurt in work and in ministry. And uh, I've had times where I've handled it well, and I've, I've had times where I've handled it not well. I've had times where there's come so much intimacy with Jesus when I cling to him and I don't let the way I want to respond be the final answer. But I let what God wants me to do be the final answer. It, it brings me to this holy spiritual level. It stretches me. That's what I want for you guys. And, and, and Jesus, it says, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God to make things right rather than making it right on his own solutions. In marriage, this is very applicable. There's times where you want to get even, you want to get right. In close friendships, this is time where you want to get even, get right. In your workplace, when your boss says something super insensitive or your coworker drops the ball and it creates more work for you, man, it is easy to want to react. But intimacy with Jesus and the spiritual stretching comes when we cling to him and we act out of love and goodness. We're, we're, we're so instinctually prone, though, to grow bitter or retaliate. When our boss does something wrong, we want to call him a raka. Isn't that idiot or something? We want to call him an idiot. But Jesus said that's like murder in our heart. He was calling us away from these things. When our coworkers fail us, betray us, or gossip about us, man, we want to respond differently. When our families hurt us, we want to blame them even until we're 40. And I'm not saying don't validate the wounds that you've had since a child. But what I'm saying is don't let that be the final reason. When our political system fails us, how often do we just bash it and put up memes of Biden or Trump and uh, not honor the emperor like it's about to tell us to do? When someone disagrees with us, how do we blast them and troll them online or speak ill of them in our heart or get aggressive about them or gossip? You guys, this is a real struggle. It can only be done to the spirit to respond appropriately. When our friends bail on us, what do we often do? Let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Let's look at the citizen who, um, who shows us a shining example of what it looks like to suffer. In the ESV, chapter 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. How many times was this posted like during COVID for how like some people thought church should respond or some people how the church would... I was not want to talk about COVID and we just got there. It was like, oh, I'm going to go into some things, okay? Bear with me. Bear a brother's burden with him tonight, okay? <laughs> Sometimes we in one camp read this passage and we think we should do everything our government tells us to do no matter what, even if it tells us to be... Uh, Nazi creating internment camps. And others think, well, no, there's definitely hoorah times to rebel the government. Let's dive into some solid truth in this before we get into all those nuances. The point is, despite the injustice done to us, we are to show good to other people. We are to show honor to other people. We can agree that God wants us to do good and show honor, despite 
the trials we face, despite the injustice we face. That, I think, is biblically solid. Like Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, do good, show honor. Go with him two miles. Like Jesus says, God's heart is gracious and kind. God does good to even those who aren't good. God shows honor often to those who aren't good. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. How does our Father in heaven enact? Well, he loves those who uh, are undeserving. For he makes his son rise on the evil, on the Trump supporters, on the liberals, no matter what political camp we're in, no matter who gossips about who, he still makes the sun shine on them. And he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. God has a way of showing kindness, of goodness, of honor, despite the injustice. God longs for us to act like his children, to be unbelievably kind, generous, and forgiving. I love, it. I love that, that Peter starts this kind of controversial passage off of something very clear, actually. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. Because God, for the Lord's sake here, is like, because God wants you to, in this situation, be subject. Whether this is a one-size-fits-all passage that tells you how to act with your government, or whether this is situational, the point we need to look at is be subject for the Lord's sake. Whatever you choose to do, have it be informed by Scripture, and do it for the Lord's sake. In your heart of hearts, can you say, this is for the Lord's sake? Or is this just because this is what political camp I've been in or what, what idea I have or whatever version of morality? But can you honestly say between you and God, how you respond to your government or how you respond to hard situations? I'm doing this because in my heart of hearts, I believe it's the Lord's sake and it's informed by scripture. We're always called to be obedient to God. We are always subject to the Lord, though, above every human institution. But God usually, usually asks us to obey our government and usually asks us to show and deserve kindness. Now, I want to just get into the context of this because this passage makes way more sense with what's historically going on. It's written during a time of Christian uh, persecution. First Peter was written during the time of Emperor Nero's persecution was starting to ramp up. Obviously, it hasn't fully ramped up because Peter's still alive. Christians were not the majority at this time. They're a small religious group. And they're becoming increasingly blamed for their societal issues. Perhaps because they didn't partake in idol worship and some of the corruption of their culture. Perhaps because they were countercultural, Or perhaps because the devil's out to get them. I don't know. But we know that the, the, they were being blamed because in 64 A.D., during the time this was written, there was a fire room that burned for about seven days, and it burned about 75% of the city. And Nero blamed the fire on Christians to kind of save his own political reputation. So these Christians are being blamed, and Peter's advice to them is, give no one actual reason to think ill of you. They may say bad things about you, but give them no actual reason. Don't act in a way that any of that is actually true or valid. He, he then made, Nero made a statewide persecution of Christians, murdering and torturing them. Um, an excerpt from a historian at the time said about Christians, in their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to in one. The day waned, burned to set, uh, serve for the evening lights. They were, they were uh, persecuted immensely once this ramped up. This, most scholars think this was written as things were ramping up, okay? So with this context in mind, realize Peter's writing to an increasingly heightened situation. That's getting worse and worse. He's writing to Christians who are being falsely blamed and name-called. He's advocating that the, they give the government ever no actual reason to think ill of the Christians. That's why he says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I, I want to get a little into do we always have to obey, obey our government always? Just to, just to think about this passage though. It's on my mind as I read this passage. It's a question we often ask, but I don't think it's the, 
the main point of the passage. I think in context, this passage is mainly about how these Christians walk in wisdom and do good and show honor as a way to fight back against the naming and blame call. What if your government asked you to be uh, a, Nazi, a Nazi exterminating people in internment camps? Probably shouldn't do it. To fight unjust wars, be subject to the Lord's sake first. See what he wants you to do. Do something directly against God. Well, I'm not sure. You, I don't think you should do it. This very nation was built on a revolution of people who defied their government. It was built on a lot of other things too, but it was built on a revolutionary war, and uh, it was built on defiance, perhaps for the right reasons. Defiance of an oppressive government. Might I remind you God himself is in the business of tearing down corrupt governments? And I don't think we should, but God, who is completely holy and understanding and wise and all-knowing, he does it a lot in scripture. And that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I just want you to know there is a God who cares about injustice. And like Jesus entrusted himself to that God to make things right, we can too, and we see it in scripture and we don't have to feel completely helpless, but what we do have to do is wait on the Lord often. For vengeance is the Lord's. He plagued Egypt. He scattered the Tower of Babel. He took Pharaoh's son's life. He led the Israelites against Jericho with marching and song. He led King David against the Philistines. He raised up Esther in the Persian kingdom to save the Jews from annihilation. Jesus himself flipped tables, which wasn't against his government, but it was an act in some eyes of rebellion. God is in the business of taking down corruption. The lamb himself is coming back in the second coming to finish the cosmic battle against evil in the end times and throw corruption into this prison called hell where it can no longer pollute the new heaven and the new earth. God cares so much about the injustice done in this world. He primarily wants to heal injustice through redemptive justice by saving people and changing their hearts so they no longer pollute the earth like that. But at the end of the day, God will cast his net and draw it up and get rid of the injustice in this world. It's a place called hell. We, we don't talk about it all the time in church because it's pretty confusing in scripture. But that's the basic idea. God's going to get rid of corruption. He's done it a lot in the past in scripture. We can see that. He has plans to do it in the future in the final act, the final judgment, if you will. To be clear, God is all about opposing corruption and taking it down. There's very few times in scripture that he uses people to be a part of that plan, but in the book of Joshua, he has them clear out the promised land from these crazy children sacrificing idol worship people. He actually uses people to do that. I've never had God uh, tell me to do something like uh, form a militia. I've never had God really do something else besides trying to just love my friends and my family, but I'm not saying it's completely out of the book. You want to make sure you're on God's side. You want to make sure you're subject to the Lord. You want to make sure you're doing good and showing honor. Many times the Israelites, they went ahead of God and they fought battles on their own and they lost. They got whooped. God wasn't their strength in those times. They just chose to go into battle. To be clear, make sure God's on your side. Make sure he's going before you. And this isn't just whether you should form a militia or not or, or defy your government. In general, with the things you face, when it, there's an opportunity for confrontation, I probably should make this more relevant. Um, when there's an opportunity, <laughs> sorry, I'm nerding out a little bit. Um, but I think it's because it's one of these things we need to pick out of this passage that has too many nuances. Okay, when there's an opportunity for confrontation in general, do good, show honor, make sure God's going before you. And I, get, I might be getting too Bible nerdy. And to be clear on this subject of defying government, in the end times, Christians will suffer and God will hear the voice of martyrs, not the voice of zealots. But don't accept the limited view of scripture that you must absolutely always, always, always 1,000% obey your government. Uh, I just think it's usually, have a, have a complexer, more flavorful view of all of the scripture. Don't end up like many forgotten zealots in Jesus' time, though, who thought the kingdom would come through their own methods of conquest and rebellion, Okay? Jesus actually had some of those zealots be his disciple, and they watched Jesus die a horrific death, and he said, this is what's going to save people. God's ultimate plan and desire is to redeem people more than just destroy them. Our desire should be to see redemption rather than destruction and rebellion. I think about, though, how these Christians were falsely blamed in the wisdom Peter gave them to give them 
give um, people no ill actual reason to speak bad about them. Sure, they, you can't control whether someone name calls or blames you or labels you, but what you can't control is whether they have evidence, whether there's fact there. Look, in COVID, it, it tires me out to talk about it. We made it through it. It's almost like just don't talk about it for years. But there was two sides of the fence. There was the anti-vax and the vaccines. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be like, this isn't about that issue, okay? Just don't get your feathers too rustled for a second. Hear me, just listen for a second. It was about masks or no masks. Some, some even opposed it as making it into a, a fear or faith thing. Some people shook their head and rolled their eyes at that kind of thing. Churches split, churches went online, churches hit out. I'm not here to argue aside, but this is something relevant. I think that actually we're very close to the people of what they went through um, in 64 AD. It, it's, it's sad to me how politicized things can get, and it actually just makes us a complex layer that, that um, is even harder to actually address the issue itself as we start to create camps, our culture does it, we get involved in it, and we're like, you're either in this camp or not, if you're not in my camp, I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna label you, I'm gonna call names on you, I'm gonna act immature you, I'm gonna post funny memes about you. We start taking sides so often when things get politicized, and issues are important, but there's a way it gets a little bit removed when it just becomes what political bandwagon you're a part of. The question I have, for you is if you really thought about how you handled COVID, did you handle it maturely? Did you do honor and good? I don't know, I don't care which camp you were in. Can you say in your heart of hearts, I clung to Jesus, I was doing honor and good. Being subject to the Lord likes, looks like wanting to show undeserved kindness. It looks like wanting the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, on those who agree with us and disagree with us. It looks like the rain, sending the rain and wanting to bless and be generous to those who are the opposite of us. And this people will know that we're children of our Father in heaven. It doesn't look like prioritizing our political beliefs above the Lord. Sometimes we get popped out politically. I'm not saying you can't have any political beliefs and the Bible is the only thing that can ever... Uh, you can, be, you can be involved in politics. You can vote. You can be interested. You can be reading. But there is a way sometimes where our political beliefs become our God and our idol. And certainly if it's not in the church, it's in this world. We put a little too much hope in where our country's at. We can have care. We can have concern. But going back to Peter's view of hope, the hope is something imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And while the word, okay, look, the Bible ends with the world falling away and into, into warfare, and, but Jesus comes back. It's going to fail. This world's going to end in a horrific cosmic battle, okay? I don't want to see people suffer. I don't want to see this country go to ruin. I don't want to see any country go to ruin. But at the end of the day, I can't save it. It can't be my only hope of what happens politically. I think having a humble mindset doesn't look like needing to be heard all the time on our political issues, too. I think it looks like listening to other people. I think it looks like not just always posting on social media and trolling people. I think it looks like being more considerate. I think it looks like considering what kind of representative God we are being. It doesn't look like put-downs or slander. You know, all, the reason I'm talking about COVID is it was a chance for the Christians to show they're generous. Their, gener their generosity, their kindness, their honor, their service. I just want you to think about personally, did you do that in COVID? And I get there's a lot more there. It was hard for us. Many of us went through our own trials in COVID. Okay? One thing I think is real, although not true, is that Christians are growing a reputation, at least by, in many's eyes, of, well, again, this is, may not be true, but it's negative. It's, it's easy because we live in a country that is, Christianity is everywhere. There's a church on every block. There's mega churches. This is still a, a, a country that has a lot of roots in Christianity. That, that, that one, Christianity can get um, watered down. I, I have a lot of non-believing friends that kind of view my faith as my opinion. I'm like, it's not an opinion I intellectually just ascribe to. Dude, this is the thing that pumps life into my heart and gives me the power to live a life that I can never live on my own. It's more than just an opinion. I'm fine with um, you not believing in God, but don't rewrite what my faith is. I think the problem, though, is because it's so watered down, it's so common that we live in a Christian country that it's a way to kind of desensitize ourselves to it. 
I think that's one thing. Is Christians can get falsely labeled by just pure apathy. But I also think Christians can get falsely labeled as, and again, I don't think this is true, intolerant, Trump-supporting, flag-waving, racially insensitive, gay-bashing, judgmental capitalist conservatives. That is not all Christians, okay? And that is a very reduced label, and there's different versions of that label. You can maybe paint up your, your version of a, of, of a hyper-liberal Christian as well. But I think it's easy for many in the world to just, especially in America, to just label Christians falsely. And I, I hear the words of Peter say, give them no actual evidence for that. I, I have friends, like, you know, it's beautiful when you, when you have a non-Christian friend. We were just went out surfing with a friend a, a couple weeks ago. Struggled with the church, been hurt by the church. He's gotten really into politics in a way that is like, you know, obviously I think trying to fill some of those holes of the love of Jesus with just, like, care and concern for the world. And maybe Jesus could refine that if he was in his life, don't get me wrong. But he kind of started talking at us like we thought all these things. Like we were like these Christian conservatives. Like, um, and I, I had, didn't, didn't share any of my political beliefs with him. It was like, I don't know where this is coming from. Then I realized it's because it's so easy to label um, and blame Christians and to think false of them according to this image. But we have this beautiful opportunity to do good, to show honor, to be a witness through trials to folks that don't understand. And it can be this beautiful awakening. We can be the first person that realized that breaks that label and it's actually following Jesus is a life of love and communion with God that is so beautiful they want to be a part of it. It's an uphill battle we face because there's so many preconceived notions by non-Christians on what Christians are. And perhaps vice versa for Christians on those dang heathens. Okay? I think we have to do honor and show good. I think maybe you could go to war if God tells you to. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I want to end tonight just saying um, suffer well. When, when, when you experience the fiery trials, remember um, it's more than the pain you'll go through. It's more than the challenge. It's more than the struggle. It's going to be used for good to be a witness to other people. Okay, I'm going to pray. And uh, the band can come up. Jesus, uh, just thanks for your word. I uh, need a person in here. God, I pray you would speak words um, to our hearts as we go into worship. Um, that we're created to be a beautiful witness, your spirit. Um, it's going to help us. You're going to help us through our trials and the suffering maybe many of us are going through right now. We just pray for a sweet, blissful, peaceful time of you uh, speaking to our hearts as we enter into worship through music. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.